0: Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for Student Affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. On today's live broadcast, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of CAS. This episode of Student Affairs Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge, participate in today's discussion by tweeting us at higher ed live or hashtag higher ed live. Thanks to the folks who are managing all of the back channel. If you have questions for our panelists, please tweet at hashtag higher live. We'll do our best to incorporate them into today's discussion. We broadcast student affairs live approximately twice each month on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q, Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit. Visit platformqedu.com. All of our episodes are recorded, they're free and easy to access in the video archives at HiredLive.com or take Hired Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Hired Live is produced by M Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Two rows of navigation, a carousel, three news items, three events, three alumni profiles, a social media aggregator and a fat footer. Does that look familiar? Don't fall into the higher ed website sea of sameness. The upcoming and free M Stoneer webinar on Wednesday, April twenty second, April twenty fourth. Uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 Pacific is for you. They'll arm you with the tools you'll need to make your next website redesign starting with your homepage distinct and compelling. We'll be tweeting out a link to the registration page here shortly. And now on to today's show. Today we're talking about CAST, the Council on the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. We have the current CAST president with us today, as well as two past CAST presidents, uh, and we'll have them introduce themselves here in just a moment moment. We're going to begin, though, with Susan Comovest. I'm very excited to do this introduction. Nearly 15 years ago, uh, I was a doctoral student at the University of Maryland with Susan, and we went on a grand adventure to the University of Richmond to learn about their leadership program and visit with students and some of their faculty, and it was a wonderful trip. And on the way home, I sat in the back seat as Dr. Susan Comovest received her first and only speeding ticket of her entire your life fairs brush with greatness and I told her at that moment that someday I would get to introduce her and I would tell that story and I've been waiting for 15 years to be able to do it and today I got to do that so thank you Susan with gifting me this wonderful opportunity uh, to share that story but please tell us much more about you and your involvement with Cass and what you've been doing and what you are doing. Well I'm surprised it took you 15 years to <laughs> share this story. <laughs>
1: Um, I, yes, CAS has certainly been a part of my life. Um, I'm Professor Emeritus from the University of Maryland and you have used CAS lots. But when I was a executive committee member in ACPA back in the 70s is when CAS was being founded. And I know Laura's gonna tell us more about that, but being part of that process to see the early founders, uh, their early processes, Laura was involved in, that was very important. And in one of my first vice presidencies, uh, we needed to create a new commuter affairs operation, didn't have anything going, and we used CAS to build a new program. So while CAS is designed for assessment and evaluation, I've uh, used it a lot to build new programs that we need on campus. Uh, so let me stop there, but uh, glad to be here, and i uh, glad to say no more speeding tickets.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, so I've known Susan for a long time. I've known Gavin for a while as well through ACPA involvement and the Institute and the Curricular Approach and many other things, but Gavin, why don't you tell us all a little bit more about you?
2: Sure. So I'm Gavin Henning, and I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm currently a professor of higher education at New England College in Central New Hampshire, where I direct the Masters of Higher Education Administration program, as well as our doctoral program. And I'm the current president of CAS, but actually I got on CAS because Susan Comavez, nominated me to be one of the ACPA representatives um, a few years ago and so I I got involved that way and just figured I had to continue to follow her footsteps um, through the presidency and and here I am right now.
0: Excellent. Well, there's many people who have been nudged into greatness by Susan Comovest. And Laura Dean, I have not met you until we started discussing this episode, but go ahead and please tell us a little bit more about you.
3: Sure. Laura Dean, uh, pronouns she, her, and hers. I'm a professor in College Student Affairs Administration and Student Affairs Leadership at the University of Georgia. I've been here about 13 years now, and before that I was a practitioner. Largely in small colleges in Indiana and North Carolina, uh, and began to use CAS actually as a graduate student and then in practice, uh, particularly arguing for how we needed to do some things in small colleges that hadn't necessarily been practiced before. So, uh, the credibility of the standards was one of my um, early sort of pieces of affinity for it. I later had the opportunity to come to CAS as a representative for the American College Counseling Association and then uh, followed in Ted Miller's footsteps as the editor uh, and then served as president. And now I just uh, serve on committees and uh, keep my fingers in and serve at the pleasure of the current president, whatever needs to happen.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm so thankful for for each of you for for joining us today, and and for Gavin for really suggesting that we uh, we have this conversation and engage in this episode. I think we want to begin with uh with a little bit of history about how how Cast came into being and how that has evolved, and uh, we'll move on to what Cast is doing now and, and how it can be of service to folks. But why don't we begin with uh, with Laura? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how this all began?
1: Absolutely.
3: Um, in, in the 1970s, as we all remember from our Foundations in History courses, um, there had been a real increase in enrollments on campus, diversity on campus. And because of those changes, there was a need for more practitioners, more people doing both counseling and student affairs work. And so preparation programs began to proliferate. But at the time, there was nothing in place to guide them, no standards, no guidelines, no agreed upon curriculum, no real mechanism for looking at that. And so a a conversation emerged around quality assurance. How do we begin to professionalize our work? And how do we begin to assure that a certain level of quality practice is happening um, across all of these different preparation programs? At the time, APGA, which is now ACA, uh, but the American Personnel and Guidance Association was an umbrella association, a, a CPA was a part of that, a division originally. And so conversations emerged from some folks that were together there. Um, I, I firmly believe that this was happening after hours after the conference over beverages, but um, that that conversation emerged into two paths. Um, the conversation was about accreditation versus self-assessment. And one group, the counselor prep folks, decided that accreditation, because of all the advantages that it brings, was the direction to go. And they created CACREP, the Council for the Accreditation of Counseling and Related Educational Programs, and set up an accreditation that still exists today. The other group, though, more of the Student Affairs folks believed that Institutional context varies so much that it's hard to have a hard and fast uh, process like accreditation, and they believe that good folks given the right tools can do a responsible job of self-assessment. And so their path was to think about a process to create a set of standards to guide first preparation programs and later other areas And that the way to do that was to bring together associations that represent different kinds of practice and come to consensus around that. And that really is the origin of mass. It's grown and expanded today, but it comes out of a desire for quality assurance and a belief that broad input creates an understanding of what good practice looks like.
0: Mm. I I think that's great to hear some of that, uh, that origins and it's a good reassurance to know that but some good ideas do come out uh, over beverages uh, late at night or after a conference has already happened. So uh, <laughs> Susan, you've you've been involved with CAST in many ways, and uh, I certainly know that you've been a, a champion of CAST uh, beyond your involvement. Um, what would you like to add about how CAS has evolved and sort of the path it has taken since its uh, inception?
1: Yeah, I think I might even ask Laura to go back and add. Well, let me let me start off and say I was president. Um, came on the CAS board in about 2005, uh, right around the time of the 21st anniversary, 25th anniversary had just occurred. And in, in when I was president for the, it's a five-year term, and three years then as active president, in 2008, nine, and 10, we had the 30th anniversary of CAS. So at that point, after 30 years, CAS had already developed 40 sets of standards, had gone through uh, a name change from being Council for the Advancement of Standards of Student Affairs, Student Services, and Student Development uh, to students in higher education. I thought I ask Laura, who was around at those times, to comment on that. And then Laura, um, add some, some language and thoughts to how the first set of outcomes got rolled into the CAST process with those 16 different individual outcomes. Because I want to comment on how we moved it from there.
3: Happy to. Um- let me start first with the outcomes piece because i think that that probably tells also the story of of how some things in the field have changed at the time uh when the original cast standards were written uh originally 11 groups came together 11 associations and then that grew pretty quickly but in 1979 when the original work was done and then it took into the 80s for that to be published that group of people who were um significant players in their various fields came together, faculty members and practitioners, to talk about what good practice looks like and what happens if you have it. And the original set of outcomes was really more a set of examples. There was a statement in the standards that said, Good practice in this area basically will result in outcomes such as, and there was a list of 16 things that was basically brainstormed by the people in the room. Now, there's some credibility because of who those people were and what their practice was, but at the time that the thought was not evidence based practice in the way that we think about it now. So it was sort of a, a brainstormed list of holistic student development and success. My very favorite phrase from that original list was salubrious lifestyles. Now, one of the outcomes was salubrious lifestyles because Ted Miller really liked the word salubrious. Uh, mm-hmm. And now that I, I teach where he taught and still see documents that he wrote, I can attest to that. Um, so at the time, it, it really was not intended to be outcomes in the way that we know them now. Um, as, as the field progressed, one of the things, one of my beliefs is that history happens with the people who were there. And I remember a series of meetings, and this was happening probably in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, when Phyllis Mabel, who was one of our founders and one of our presidents, and our first executive director, started saying in conversations Outcomes are becoming important. We have to think about outcomes. We, we have to think more about what this really looks like and why. And that was really the initial prompting for us to get more serious about it and eventually to put together um, sort of a, a blue ribbon panel, if you will, of folks who had been involved in Learning Reconsidered, as Susan certainly was a, a key player there, folks who had uh, done some disciplinary outcomes work, Um, folks who had been been doing some research around that came together to really say, what is state-of-the-art and what can we add to it? And that really was the impetus for moving in the direction of a much more um, evidence-based and clearly thought-about set of outcomes. That's only one of the things you asked me to talk about, but do you want to pick up the next part from there? Uh
1: well, I, I guess I would add that in, in. after we had done Learning Reconsidered in 2004 and I was on that as the ACPA NASPA um, committee that did that, we developed for that building a lot on George Koo's work at that point because Koo had already been doing work. Nessie had be, was beginning, um, he had already adopted the platform that uh, Bob Pace had brought around environmental assessment and how college experiences contribute to uh, various student outcomes. So we uh, modified in um, Learning Reconsidered that set of outcomes, added dimensions of how they're developed across the environment to make the point that these things occur in the curriculum and the co-curriculum. And then the point I wanted to make about them when we worked on it to change the CAST statement of outcomes to be these uh, categories of six with their various dimensions and properties that we actually went beyond Learning Reconsidered and modified some of them, included ones that Learning Reconsidered had overlooked in things like technology and global awareness and some other things so that- Practical competence.
3: competence.
1: Yes, practical competence. CAS set of outcomes then is the most current that student affairs people really should be using. Learning Reconsidered then are kind of like version one and this is version 2.0. So the CAS outcomes turned out I think to be the most current ones. You were going to talk about name change, too, I think.
3: Yeah. When the original group came together, um, it really was conceived originally as a a student affairs, student services, student development um, endeavor. And those were the original groups really that came together, were what we think of now as some of the core associations, uh, representing activities in res life and those sorts of things. And over time, uh, CAS, because I think it it, originally it was the only game in town, right? We were the only ones doing these sort of uh, functional area standards and really bringing people from different areas together to talk about what good practice looks like. One of the things that always stuck with me from my early days in CAS is something that Bud Thomas used to say. Bud was a longtime vice president at Maryland who was one of the key original uh, people in CAS, And Bud would talk about the importance of us breaking out of what he called guildism, meaning when we stay in our own practice bubbles and we don't talk to people whose work touches ours, we don't think as well about how it works on a campus, how things integrate with one another, what horizontal structures look like, instead of just vertical silos. And so, Bud was really a strong proponent for bringing as many people to the table as possible so that you got both broad input into the agreed upon standards, informed by expert judgment as well. And so, CAS quickly began to both recruit and attract people from broader and broader areas that quickly sort of overflowed the boundaries of student affairs. Um, People were coming in from academic advising and from other sort of uh, academic bridge areas. And so uh, it was decided that a better name would be the Council for the Advancement of Standards in Higher Education, representing that across campus, anyone who was interested in good practice, student success, quality assurance, learning outcomes, um, would have a place at the CAST table and have a place in that conversation. Um, and, it, and today the size of the, the group certainly attests to, I think, the appeal of that and the utility of it for people in areas that are so wide-ranging and diverse. Um, so we've got, is it 42 members now, I think? Um, who come together to do this work of deciding what good practice looks like and what the standards should be to guide us all uh, in our work.
1: Um, I, let me go back to then the experience that I had. One of my uh, I study leadership as some of you know and one of my uh, impressions in joining the cast board was to see the phenomenon of 40, At that point, 36 member associations when I joined CAS. But to see how a consensus model of leadership decision-making really can work is just phenomenal. And it sadly isn't something we see very often. But in CAS, I think there's a recognition that, yes, we have to vote finally. And Robert's rules of order, since we're a fiduciary board uh, representing all these other associations, we have to take uh, legitimate business actions. But CAS's discussion process is one of discussing all the issues involved with every sentence or a word or a concept uh, until everybody feels comfortable with it and then saying, are we ready now for a motion? And and saying, yes, let's move to adopt this document um, as discussed and having that then be by consensus because the discussion has worked through various issues. And I can't emphasize enough the importance Laura what Laura just said about um, when a member association raises an issue because it's important to their members you know a, an absurd example and not a real one would be if we had a standard they called um, dormitories what the housing units for students Akuho would certainly be correcting us that they are residence halls they are not dormitories and so of course the group would say of course we don't want to use language or concepts that are uh, irrelevant offensive not appropriate not timely not visionary and so the the breadth of expertise around the room makes sure that everything there addresses the needs of diverse students, diverse types of institutions, and the consensus model really is, works well. Um, when, I, when I became president of CAS, we were moving out of an era of not accepting many new members. We'd had a number of groups approach us to join us it didn't quite fit uh, the, the developmental and learning outcome goals that we were establishing. But we did align a, a couple new associations in my time as president, the uh, college safety security people, I have CLIA. Uh, And then I got an interesting phone call from people in the state of Texas. And the Board of Regents or higher ed, whatever they are in the state of Texas, wanted every single functional area to do a review based on standards in their field of their work and their function. So I would say in about a two week period, I heard from like campus legal services campus media from different campuses in Texas saying, does CAS have anything in the works that would help us in media or help us as legal services? And very, very interesting. Out of that, several associations have come to to CAS, like campus media people are now members of CAS. But very interesting to see them turn to CAS for that um, hopefully support for the work that they do. And this is where the guiding standards that are involved in every CAS standard we aren't going over all the dimensions of what CAS and CAS standards are, but the guiding standards really serve many of those institutions well. They use them actually to develop their own guidelines because there wasn't something, if there wasn't something that we had. Um, I do think that one of the big initiatives by the time we were 30 years old was to say it's time to stop being the best kept secret in higher education. You know, <laughs> uh, that metaphor too often, like too many people still didn't know about CAS or don't know about it. And largely that's because lots of people come from other fields than graduate preparation programs and they might not be taught CAS like people in grad prep programs hopefully are. Uh, But we did reach out way beyond us finally by about our 30th year to be engaged with the bigger outcomes and assessment movement, NALOA. CAS was invited to be involved in the Moving the Needle Invitational Symposium by the Leadership Alliance for Student Learning and Accountability and that got us in the room with the American Council on Education, uh, Chia, the Council for Educational Accrediting, AACNU, and in presenting what CAS had been doing for the early years, people's mouths were dropping open that this amount of depth of practice and guidance existed that some of those had not known were there. So clearly, one of the CAS um, admonishments for ourselves is to get this work more, more widely known and and used in a way that accrediting associations and all know it. Uh, we did we did a number of things, I think, in that regard of outreach, and we're actually invited to come to other countries. Uh, South Africa, there were programs done in time, besides Canada, because Canada is a member association, and we're very conscious that CAS products are designed for more Western universities or in a culture that has student affairs in its history for a century. And so it shouldn't just be wholesale adopted. It could have, it could inform the look at standards in other higher ed systems in other countries, but it should be carefully used. But indeed, it it is um, discussed in Taiwan and uh, Asia and the Middle East and other places. They're aware of CAS as a concept. Um, So CAS, by by, um, all those efforts I think that we were making, received the Higher Education Award from ACPA, contribution to higher ed from, uh, the contribution to higher ed from the National Council for Student Development, the Community College Group, And it was really wonderful to see uh, recognition of the contributions and quality i think that cast made we have persistent issues and i think gavin can address too and will probably some of the ways we've tried to become more technologically involved um we certainly have had to deal with institutional complexity one person multi-function offices had a hard time using cast multi-site campuses were challenged with how do you assess Uh, When a community college system might have five campuses that report to the vice president, how does that work across those environments? Uh, Laura, you raised the accreditation versus self-assessment issue in CAS's founding, and it still comes up with our grad prep programs who are faced with college Eds who want them to be accredited by somebody or other, and CAS has resisted going in that direction. And then just today and inside higher education, you know, there's the question of, what is this hot mess we're into around assessment you know and are we do we need to rethink this differently anyway so faculty in particular have had a hard time with assessing learning outcomes in classroom-based learning um but there there's a challenge for us too assessment i think continues to be measures for assessment continue to be a challenge let me stop there and see where we
0: go yeah well i think you're 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 bringing up two things that have been um that have been floating around that they cast emerged as um uh, student learning outcomes emerged and accreditation agencies now are very active in, in encouraging that and not just encouraging that you have student learning outcomes but that you've assessed them and now merging into that you have them and now you've assessed them and now how are you going back and improving their practice and there has been some some things as, as susan mentioned and, and people critiquing student learning outcomes as, as just being another add-on as folks uh talking about assessment and we'll get some links of those out here in a little bit um not really helping improve what we do. So I, I, don't, I would say those are not really critiques of learning outcomes or assessment, but of it done poorly. <laughs> and how do we do these things do these things well and help move us forward? So um, Susan, I think uh, I would love to invite you uh, to, to talk a little bit about the executive directors of CAS, who I know uh, are people who have mattered to you greatly. Um, and I, I just don't think we should pa- let this episode pass without mention of the executive directors of CAS.
1: That's a wonderful invitation. The, as Laura said, the first executive director, which was part-time, CAS is not a rich organization, but the first part-time executive director was dear Phyllis Mabel, who had been a founding president of CAST and a past president of ACPA. And Phyllis, with her big heart and big shoulders, um, big love of CAST, just did way more than part-time work to advance uh, the CAST mission and help campuses that were calling with what they could do. And so Phyllis sadly died. And um, we were needing of an executive director, and she had been aided in some projects by one of our doctoral students, my advisee from Maryland, uh, Mary Beth Sharp, uh, Mary Beth Drexler Sharp, and Mary Beth came on as our first time um, full time director of CAS. I think Laura, you might have been her first supervisor. Um, I was. And the cast office relocated, to um, a couple times in that era, including out to where Mary Beth was then living in Colorado. And sadly, Mary Beth and all of her uh, uh, being too young died of metastatic breast cancer. And all of us who know her were very admiring of the blog she posted that taught a lot of people a lot of things, about, uh, particularly for women, about how to be um, sensitive to that process that could occur to them. So we are sad for Mary Beth. Uh, we now have an interim executive director working with Gavin, who's also a former president of CAS, Deb Garrett. And I don't know, Gavin, the status of any search for that position, but I would say that um, we were sad to lose two our first two executive directors of CAS to um, untimely deaths.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know those are two people who you are deeply connected to and um, often spoke very, very highly of. So I appreciate that. Um, so we have a little bit of how CAS emerged, uh, how it has evolved, along with uh, student affairs and higher education in general. A little bit about some of the, the leadership. Uh, Gavin, you're, you're the current president, so I know you've been along this with this with CAS um, in, in other roles. But um, we'd like to kind of turn it over to you to help uh, inform us all about what CAS is doing and how it can be useful for current um, student affairs educators.
2: Sure. Um, I think right now, I would, if I were to define where CAS is, I would say it's in a, um, a point of evolution and transformation. And really there are two uh, elements or two things, issues that really uh, uh, perpetuate or, or precipitated that and both happened in t- uh, 2016. One was a market research report. So we commissioned an outside firm to tell us a little bit about who are our users, what are the needs of our users. Um, And at the same time, we commissioned an um, an internal future directions report. Um, Rich Keeling was the one that led that group to really help us think through uh, what do we wanna be doing in five, 10 years down the road? And what we learned from both of those documents is that CAS really wasn't meeting the needs of users in higher ed like we anticipate. Um, the standards were out there. I think we still have some of the issues of people understanding what um, CAS is, and they've heard the name, but they may not necessarily know what what's all is bundled in there. And but the bigger thing people were telling us was like, we we know what the CAS standards, but we need help using them. And so that really kind of thought made us think: what do, are the additional things we need to do as an organization? And so we realized we really needed to develop a lot more resources around supporting the self-assessment process. But that required some internal changes as well, because the representatives, there are two representatives from each of the organizations, and right now we have 40 um, organizations that are members, but those representatives are um, experts in their their field, in their functional area, not necessarily assessment experts. So we had to think about, so how do we go about getting the resources to create these, these other products to help people do this work. And as Susan mentioned, CAS is not a rich organization, and so we had to think creatively. Um, interesting, at the same time, we were hearing from a lot of folks through the, both of those reports, people wanted to get connected to CAS. And really the only way up until about a year and a half ago that they could get connected to CAS was actually be a representative. But if you're in an association of three, five, 10,000 members, your chance of getting being one of those two representatives is pretty slip. and so we created a couple different things. First of all, we created some user groups so people could share with each other and crowdsource on um, how they're doing that work. But uh, the bigger thing that I think really made a huge difference in our organization is creating our volunteer pool. So we created a volunteer pool, and when we put that call out, we had a hundred people who wanted to get involved with CAS to help develop these products, volunteering their time, both staff members and faculty members. We also did some internal reorganization so that the governing board could really focus on doing governance and that that we had another committee that focused on the standards work. And that really helped move us forward as well. And so now that we're um, developing more and more resources, which a lot of them will be um, publishing and putting out pretty soon, a lot more work around how do we support that self-assessment process. We do have some new standards, and we'll continue to do the standards. Um, We actually, last week, we just approved a a new set of standards for case management. Uh, We've added testing. Uh, We're also in the process of working on standards for Indigenous student programs, which I'm really excited about, as well as sustainability. But in addition to that, we've created a ton of other resources, and one that we're pretty proud of is what we call cost-functional frameworks. And cross-functional frameworks was actually it was one of the items that came out of our future directions report when the folks are saying, we still need functional area standards, but a lot more of the work is happening across functional areas within higher education. And we need some tools to help us do that. Um, and Pat Caretta, who is a representative of NACE and um, retired assistant vice president at George Mason, really helped move us along in that area. And um, just recently, last few months, we have published um, a cross-functional framework for first-year experience programs, as well as advancing health and well-being. They look and feel like standards, they're, they're common sections, and they really provide a guide for how to create these teams that do this work. And we're working on self-assessment guides for those as well. And right now, we're in, in, right in development right now, we're with one on behavioral intervention teams. And so we're trying to really meet the needs of higher education, but also kind of push higher ed um, in terms of thinking: what are the things that we need out there? You know, so for example, the Indigenous student programs. There's not going to be a huge um, call for that because there's very few programs here in the United States. A lot more in Canada, but few in the United States. But that's a need. And so CAST begin is beginning to think about how do we take the lead in articulating what is needed in the field for these um, for, sort of these uh, standards of practice. There are a number of support documents that we created. One actually addresses the, an issue that um, Susan brought I've Had is how do a small office that, has, that oversees multiple standards, how can they do that work? So I'm at a very small campus, about 2,000 students. Um, our campus activities office um, oversees orientation, student leadership, um, the campus union, um, and about two or three other functional areas. It's got a full-time director and a half-time grad assistant. So there is just no way that they're going to be able to do all that. And so we put together a document which outlines several different ways that an office can approach that. And so that's a guide that's available. To address the issue of how you actually um, do a, self, um, a self-study, we do have some information in the self-assessment guides. Um, but Deb Garrett actually led a group of assessment professionals who put together a step-by-step document so somebody who's brand new to assessment, brand new to self-studies, could actually do that. Um, we're also working on um, what we, some other resource papers. Um, so we've got, we're calling them functional area resource papers. So really getting to this idea of how do you use the CAS standards for something other than self-assessment. And so we've, right now we've published uh, one for gender and women's studies, and we've got a few others in the pipeline right now. Um, we also are publishing a number of other white papers. Uh, we have one that's ready to, to go out probably in the next month, and month and a half, uh, how do you use CAS for um, regional accreditation to support that process? Another one that's coming out is how do you use the CAS standards to create a culture of assessment uh, in a division? We have one specifically related to CAS and HBCUs. Um, and then one that's um, that I'm working on helping to finalize right now is one on how do you actually use CAS? To teach grad students and early professionals about the field. And CAS can be a really cool thing. So we're continuing to develop those types of tools as well as continuing to um, work with other functional areas to identify what are those standards that need we uh, still need as the field continues to emerge.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Kevin. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about, you mentioned this self-study uh, I'm wondering if you could give us a, a little bit more detailed example, because I think a lot of folks, when they're creating a new office or when they're doing an external review are turning to CAS standards or maybe an internal review. Um, but um, how, how have you seen folks really use the CAS standards in terms of self-study um, to improve what they're doing?
2: So typically what people will do is they'll go through the self-study process. You know, we talked with folks. It can be very basic where the director of an office sits in their office and goes through this self-assessment guide and ranking themselves without any evidence. So a more rigorous approach- That's not what we're recommending, is it? Is to spend 12 to 18 months to actually gather evidence. And I'm working with an institution right now to help them do that. Now, from my perspective, any of that is useful because some self, self-assessment is better than no self-assessment. And so um, some people don't have the time to put 18 months in at this point. Um, but even taking a look at these self-assessment guys with their staff, individually, you can get a sense of what are they doing well or what are they not doing well? And then ideally, there'll be some strengths and weaknesses that come out of that process um, that will lead to an action plan and some um, resource allocation or resource reallocation. Um, but again, self-assessment, just one uh, way to use that. So you, you can uh, People are using CAS standards to create new offices, as Susan talked about. Um, They're also using um, the cast centers. to think about what are the skills and knowledge that their staff need? You know, when we think about what has to happen in in these functional areas, do their staff have those skills and knowledge? Um, For those of us that went through our master's program 20, 25 years ago, the field is very different. There's very little that I had learned on my master's program that's relevant today because the field changes so quickly. And so we have to ensure that our professionals in the field are able to have the the intellectual skills, the technical skills to meet the needs of our students, and the, and the CAS standards would help you do some of that.
0: Great. Laura and Susan, anything you want to add about how you're seeing um, people using CAS standards, or how you'd like to see people using CAS standards?
3: I, I think for me, one of the um, places that I encourage my grad students um, to use them is when they are job searching, preparing for interviews, perhaps in a functional area that either they haven't worked in yet or is different at the institution they're going to than the one they have experience in. Because I think both the contextual statements, there's sort of an introductory piece that goes with every set of standards. And then the standards and guidelines themselves are a really good, primer almost on that area and, and the really important things to know and to look for, um, the the kinds of pieces that are essential in the mission of an area, the linchpin pieces of a program, what the organization needs to look like, what legal issues are particularly distinct to that area. So I think in, in that sense, it can be really useful through a job search, not just for entry-level people, but at any point. Um, I know When I went to a new institution as a senior student affairs officer, I had something in my portfolio I hadn't worked with before. And so one of the first things I did was go to the CAS standards, read the functional or the the contextual statement, read the standards so that I could ask better questions, so that I could look with a more informed eye at what we were doing and what we might need to do and engage in that conversation uh, with those new staff members. I also always used it um, when I got a new staff member who was coming into a job and needed to acquaint themselves with what had been happening and what might be happening. I had them use the standards kind of as a a benchmark or a touchstone to understand what they were inheriting and what they might use to set goals. So those are some of the things that I've found most useful myself.
1: I'd like to address your question, but then throw something to Gavin. Uh, One of the things that always concerned me was how time-consuming and even laborious uh, using a self-assessment process can be to do it well. And the SAGs were all paper and pencil measures, um, largely throughout their history. As I was leaving my presidency in 2010, now about 10 years ago, we invited in Student Voice, they were called then, Campus Labs, I guess now, and EBI to present to us on ways we might partner with the technology deliverers in the assessment industry to see how they could help turn these into streamlined measures to be used in campus assessment. And I wondered, Gavin, if you could update the group on where all that um, has gone or where it stands.
2: Sure, and that's really another thing, another um, area where we're trying to build connections so we can access resources that CAS does not have. So we have a very strong partnership with campus labs. So if people have the camp, if they have campus labs on their campus, they can actually access electronic versions of the self-assessment guides. The cool thing is not they're not just electronic, but they can pull in data from other modules, connect it to other campus lab modules. So if you're a campus lab campus, that's really powerful because you can also connect what's happening in student affairs, student services, these academic support units with what's happening on the, the academic affairs side. So that can be really powerful, particularly for a vice president of student affairs or even a president to, to demonstrate some of those connections. Another partnership that we um, are just starting right now to develop is with IDEA. Um, and most people in student affairs aren't familiar with their IDEA, but they really do a lot of um, course, uh, ratings and instruction, so course evaluations. And we're working with them actually to create what we're calling feedback systems around various um, standards. So right now, they're um, right in the field right now is a feedback system for academic advising. And the great thing about IDEA is they actually tap into the campus labs technology, but they their strength is they have psychometricians. So when they create these tools, they are pretty solid tools. And they're able to provide um, ongoing consultation with users about how to look at the data, how to really um, maximize that data and turn that into action. And so we're um, ID has now, um, they've created a feedback system for academic advising, and they're working on civic engagement, internships, and we've actually got a plan for the next two to three years of how they're going to create feedback system in other areas. And so we're really leveraging these partnerships with some other organizations that can bring some stuff to us, but they love partnering with CAS because they get connected to CAS and the, the CAS name, so they really enjoy that.
0: What a great example of a, a wonderful partnership, bringing IDEA, which does classroom teacher evaluations, uh, and CAS, which is uh, higher ed, but uh, often focused on student affairs. And then this uh, third party of Campus Labs, which has the technology, but bringing sort of all the expertise, content area expertise, having done these evaluations, and the Campus Labs bringing the technology to really merge and inform uh, what, what folks are doing. Um, I'd love to hear what what um, what, any of the three of you see is on the horizon for CAS. It's a a 40th anniversary, hopefully down the road we'll be celebrating a 50th and 60th and 80th anniversary. What do you see on the horizon for CAS, or or, or what are your hopes?
2: I can tell you about one project that I'm really excited about. Um, And one of the things that uh, the comments we got from both our future directions uh, report as well as market research, um, and really more so than market research, when you get somebody who didn't know CAS came and said, you have this 40 plus member consortium. You're not le- leveraging all of those voices to really have an impact on the field and pull those voices together. And so that I mean, was always been in the back of my mind and um, I've been really interested lately in um, socially just assessment. And so CAS is actually taking the lead with Campus Labs to develop, um, to help individuals and organizations develop capacity around that. So to, um, Campus Labs and CAS has worked together to develop three webinars um, that really outline what Socially Just Assessment is. Um, we've also put together a podcast series, which we just launched earlier in April, and you just go to either the Campus website site or even iTunes and just Google Socially Just Assessment. We've talked with people like Natasha Jankowski from Niloa. We've talked with um, Leslie D'Souza, from, um, who's actually a student affairs assessment person in Canada, about decolonization and assessment. Some great conversations. We have a few more that we're planning um, in the future. But what I'm really excited about this project is we've pulled together a bunch of organizations to think about how do we move the field forward. And so this, this consortium, of consortiums really, includes ACPA, NASPA, caucus, which is the Canadian Association for College and University Student Services, Student Affairs Assessment Leaders, which are full-time, primarily Student Affairs Assessment folks, um, NILOA, National Institute of Learning Outcomes Assessment, the Association for Assessment um, Learning and Higher Education, and then also AAC and U. And so we are bringing these folks together to talk about how do we move the field forward in this area because when when Campus Labs and CAS talk, we realized we couldn't do it by ourselves. And so we've developed some content, but now we're thinking about how do we make this a movement? And so right now there's a group of folks working out a position statement. Uh, We did a landscape survey to get a sense of what's happening out there in the field right now. Um, and we're working on the analysis of that. We just finished it up right before both ACPA and NASA conferences. So we, we've done some preliminary analysis, but not really a full um, deep in. We're collaborating with NILOA to actually look at case studies. So we collected some case studies. We're gonna work with folks to actually develop those. So they're describing in depth what they're doing. So people can say, how do I actually do this on my campus? And then we're also working on an in-person convening for the fall. Um, similar to what LUMINA typically does is bring some thought leaders together to talk about how do we actually make some change in the field. Um, and so that's some of the things I see us you know, doing in the future. So continuing to do the, the standards work, continuing to develop resources to support the standards work, but thinking about how do we really pull that huge consortium together to make some large-scale change in the field.
0: That's great. And uh, we'll, we'll get out a link to the podcast, which is a really wonderful um, way to inform folks about and, and introduce them to a lot of really innovative thinkers uh, around socially just assessment. Laura and Susan, are there things that you see on the horizon for CAS or maybe opportunities um, that are emerging?
1: Well, I think the question, a question I would throw that back to Gavin again is what standards are in the works? I know when when I was president, um, there's so many things you see we need to address that infect, affect, students li- infect students lives, affect students' lives. Um, but the CAS process is at least a two-year process, usually three, mm-hmm. of designing a standard from scratch with all of the consultation and expert advice and review. And that's why it's a good process, but it takes a long time. A lot of personnel power from the board of directors members to do that so we were always limited in not taking on more than one or two new standards in a given cycle and i don't know where that stands now gavin but would be interested in what standards sure. are underway and what ones are in consideration
2: yeah and, and we've actually tried to condense the time that it takes to, to get them out because we realize it's taken anywhere from two to three years but with some str- with some reorganization and pulling in some volunteers we're actually able to condense that process to 18 months with a goal of revising or creating new, um, new standards about seven to eight every year. Because we realize typically our update process was w- once every 10 years and the field moves pretty quickly. And so we wanna be able to keep up with the field. Um, the ones that we're working on right now, as I mentioned, we just approved case management last week. Um, we are in the process and I think we, uh, we'll be ready to uh, approve these in either our July meeting or our November meetings. We, we, we approved the standards at one of our full council meetings. Um, we'll be doing the behavioral intervention, um, behavioral intervention team cross-cultural framework. We should be able to approve that as well as the sustainability in Indigenous student programs. And so, and people bring pr- different proposals up to us, but those are the ones, the new ones in the works, and we'll continue to revise other ones. We just started the revision process for the master's preparation program standards, and so um, there's a lot of voices included in that. Um, we've had some great conversation already. We haven't even started a revision process yet. And so there's some great opportunities in that one. There are some other ones that are just getting started. Um, but we'll continue to update standards. Hopefully, like I said, every every six um, to eight every every year. So we'll continually to update those.
0: Thank you, Gavin. Could you give us some of the, the most recent and emerging ones one more time? Sure.
2: So behavioral intervention teams is mm-hmm. a cross-functional framework. Uh, case management, we just approved last week, um, and we are actually going to make sure we include it in the next edition of the book. That will be coming out in the next couple of weeks, so our editor is working overtime to get that included. Um, indigenous student programs should be available to be approved in um, July or November. Um, and also the oh, sustainability, so really more about sustainability offices. Not sustainability across a whole institution, but we are having those conversations about do we need to create a cross-functional framework for a sustainability that looks more broadly at mm-hmm. that.
0: Thank you. That is really helpful. Um, Laura, anything that you have about the, what's coming from CAS or what you'd like to see is coming from CAS? You no,
3: know, I, I think I want to echo something that Gavin was just talking about, and that's the addition of the cross-functional frameworks. I, I think one of the things that um, is is sort of a an artifact of the way CAS was originally structured. Is that for a long time we, um, while we believe in this collaborative cross uh, pollinization if you will, we really because of the structure of the standards reinforced silos. Um, we we published only in that um, sort of structure, and I think we all have known, and the standards themselves say that the best work is collaborative work. But I don't think until the cross-functional frameworks we had done as good a job as is starting to be done now at recognizing that while single function offices still exist, will exist, have their place, and need standards, we also need to recognize the things that really most need to be coordinated across campus and need to have a team that comes together to really think in an integrated way about that student experience. And I think the, the addition of the cross-functional frameworks and the self-assessment guides, which I was a part of, of the committee that helped figure out the structure for that, I think is going to not only provide another tool that's really important for people, but it also sends another message that I think is another role that CAS plays uh, in speaking to how we should think about our work and thinking about our work cross-functionally as well as single functionally is really important. And I think will continue to be important as we continue to learn more about how to work with um, lots and lots of complexities on campuses. The day of brick and mortar and everybody comes for four years and sits in a chair and takes class face to face, graduates four years later from the same institution. I mean, that's just not representative of how our students are engaging in higher education. And I think over time, as CAS continues to evolve this question of how can CAS best capture sort of the the changes that are happening in the way that we do our work. So for me, cross-functional frameworks are a first um, tangible indicator of that. And I think that question will continue to be examined. And part of what is so um, valuable about CAS is the number of people it brings together to have that conversation, both in the member organizations and, as Gavin was talking about, in the capacity of CAS as sort of a um, hub of the, the wheel, if you will, to bring together other players, other partners, other voices to really think about what this can look like and then put that work into the hands of practitioners. CAS, of all the professional association, professional work I've ever done, CAS is the most tangible in terms of providing mechanisms that help people do better work on their campuses and for their students. And I think that, that element continues to grow.
0: Great. Any um, any we are just about uh, six and a half minutes before we'll we'll conclude here. So I just wanted to open it up, see if there's any any last thoughts about the value of CAS or words of wisdom uh, that you have for folks as we um, as we we come to conclude. Anything you hope to share that you didn't get a chance to?
2: The only thing I might add is just to reiterate that you know even though CAS has all these organizations, we still need to raise money to do the work. And so we, we raise money by selling our products. And so I would love to give away everything if I could. Um, I'd love everything to be open source, but unfortunately um, CAS doesn't have the funding to do that. And it does take a little bit of time and money to put together these resources. Um, we have a ton of new stuff that will be coming in in the next four to six weeks, including our, our 10th edition of our Blue Book. All the resources I mentioned actually help support that self-study process new standards, new self-assessment guides, these cross-functional frameworks, and even a new subscription service. So that an institution, this is really geared towards divisions, um, if you want, if you purchase the subscription, you get all of the new standards and frameworks, all new resources that are published in that year. And so that's a really huge value. So it, um, that, the cost of that, if, if somebody were to buy those individually, is about $1,500. And so that's a, a great cost savings. Um, But when people buy the products, not only do they get to support the work that they're doing, but they also forecast where we're able to create more and more of these products to help a higher education.
0: Great. Thank you, Gavin. What a great way for the current president to conclude with a fund, fundraising pitch. Uh, and we'll get a link out with the with the store. People can access all those great resources and subscriptions. Um, Susan, any, uh, any great words of wisdom to, to conclude us with?
1: Well, I would encourage participants who are watching to that do CAS reviews to plan to do convention programs and presentations on their experience, both the experience of using CAS, but also their findings and how they inform their practice from the um, evidence that they gathered. I think uh, practitioners uh, really show up at those programs and they like to see evidence as a good practice of assessment and you can help with the work that you do, teach others how to do it.
0: Thank you. Now, how about you, Laura? You kind of gave us a nice words of wisdom about the cross-functional areas. <laughs> Anything you want to wrap us up with today? I
3: think the, the thing that I, um, that I would remind people of is that going back to the original philosophy from which CAS came, this was designed to give people tools to then do good work on their campuses, in their contexts, and know best how to adapt that those those products to do that work and processes and i think sometimes people get um caught up in being afraid they're going to do it wrong or they ask questions about well will cast is it okay with cast if i do this is does cast permit this and that's what i was just going to say gavin there are no cast police nobody comes <laughs> in and tells you you're doing it right or wrong um certainly cherry picking the standards and just avoiding ones that aren't convenient for you is a wrong answer. But short of that, I think the, the power of the standards is really in the ability in the hands of practitioners to use them to enhance their own practice and to support their students and to develop their staff and to create good programs and services. And I think in using them that way, Um, they really do have the capacity to help us assure quality practice in our field, both in our preparation programs where we started, but also in all of these other areas that have come to this process because of the power of collaborative perspectives and the power of a group of people thinking together about what good practice looks like. Um, And I think knowing that they are statements of a threshold practice, not aspirational practice that people shouldn't be able to reach, uh, but should be able to inform the work that we all do. Um, my hope is that people will try it and appreciate that and become, you know, cast advocates like we are.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks to all three of you. I am grateful for your time as, and as panelists and your wisdom and your insight and your recommendations. Thanks to the great work of our producers behind the scenes. You can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the higher ed live newsletter or browse the archives at higheredlive.com it's a busy time for student affairs live we have this episode on the 40th anniversary of cast this week next wednesday we'll be talking with uh sanja ardwin and uh becky martinez about social class in the academy and then the next wednesday may 1st yes may is just around the corner i'll be talking with Uh, Brian McGowan and Dan Tillipaw about their new book on men and masculinities in higher education. So, a lot of great stuff coming up. Again, uh, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Thanks so much to our fabulous guest today, and make it a great week. Thank you all.